This podcast episode is presented by a generous sponsorship of Radio Free Santa Clarita by the California Institute of the Arts, one of the top art schools in the world located right here in Santa Clarita. Learn more at calarts.edu. Hello, everybody. It's another brand new episode of the Awesome Town Sound Podcast. Thank you for downloading. My name is Lee Uber. This is the last week of September, and we have a fantastic show for you. A little bit different than our normal episodes where we featured local musicians. This time we're going to feature a local music producer and incredible audio engineer. His name is Fred Archambault, and he calls Santa Clarita home. We had a very cool conversation about the state of music here in Santa Clarita, and it was really great to hear his take, especially for musicians here in town who are looking to gain an audience here in the shadow of LA. Please stay tuned for that interview coming up in just a few moments. But first, if you want to go see some live music in Santa Clarita this weekend, well, I've got the music calendar of events right here. So let's dive right in. Tonight at Brewery Draconum, Sean and Colin take the stage at 6.30. They'll be playing all the way till 9 p.m. tonight. Over on the campus of Cal Arts, school's back in session, and they have a cool free show, open to the public, free for all. The band's Cotton Ships, Barnacles, Color Quest, and Pasta Sundays. That's going to be happening at the Herb Alpert School of Music in room B320. That's tonight at 7.30 on the campus of Cal Arts. And later tonight, over at the Black and Blue Restaurant, they're going to have dueling pianos, as they do every Thursday from 9 p.m. to midnight. On Friday, you heard them a few weeks ago here on the podcast, Far West Sessions. They're going to be at Wolf Creek Brewery at 6 p.m. And Jeff Tate, lead singer of Queensryche, he'll be performing the entirety of Operation Mind Crime. That happens Friday night with doors opening at 7 p.m. at the Canyon. And Nick Horn will be at the local pub and grill starting at 8 p.m. On Saturday, the Modulates will be at Backyard Grub and Brews at 6.30 p.m. Right Side Up will be at Vincenzo's New Hall at 7.30 p.m. The Snareheads will be at 8th and Rail at 9 p.m. Miles to Go will be at Salt Creek Grill at 9 p.m. And some hard rock courtesy of Black Valentine. That'll be at the Brass Monkey Pub House at 9 p.m. And wrapping up the music weekend on Sunday, the G3 Band will be at Salt Creek Grill at 5 p.m. Drop Zone will be at Vincenzo's New Hall at 5.30 p.m. And the Al Pescua Project will be bringing the jazz at the Black and Blue Restaurant starting at 6 p.m. For the entire Santa Clarita music events calendar, check out awesometownsound.com and feel free to like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us at any time at theatownsound at gmail.com. A little bit of a different kind of interview this week. I got to sit down with record producer, audio engineer, and musician Fred Archambault at his home studio called 5A here in Santa Clarita. In his role behind the scenes at NBC's Last Call with Carson Daly, he recorded and mixed thousands of songs by hundreds of artists, big and small. Name the band, and Fred likely mixed them for air on national television. In addition to his work on Last Call, Fred has also worked behind the glass as an engineer on albums for a Trey Yu, Alice Cooper, Panic at the Disco, and some of the biggest albums by Avenged Sevenfold. Fred has a ton of great insight for musicians looking to be heard and recognized in 2019. We talked a lot about the state of local music here in Santa Clarita and where the local scene fits in the larger and more established LA music world. And we talked a little about the venues hosting live music here in Santa Clarita. Really a fantastic extended interview that I'm happy to share here on the show. Without any further ado, here's my interview with record producer Fred Archambault on the Awesome Town Sound Podcast. 
Yeah, so introduce yourself. Who are Absolutely. You? And, uh, and tell everyone, uh, you know, you're, you're an awesome resume. Well, I appreciate you saying that I have an awesome resume. Um, doesn't always feel that way. Um, I, I always bill myself as a record producer. My name is Fred Archambault. I was born in, in Quebec, Canada and grew up all over the United States. And, and now we're here in uh, Santa Clarita. I still call it the Los Angeles area because of Los Angeles County. Because I always, people are like, where, where are you? I'm like Valencia. And they're like, and like six flags. Like, oh, okay, I know where that is. <laughs> so I've always been doing something in music, whether it was playing in a band. I played guitar in a band called Orbit, and they were signed to A&M Records for a bit. And, um, and then I really got interested in the studio side of making music. So I've always been, you know, really interested in that idiom of, of music and that idea of storytelling, right? The, the idea of a, a lyric having a quick insight on a complex problem, right? Yeah, yeah. Love or lost. As a kid, you're always like, you know, in that sense of belonging. That, that always attracted me. So it was always like, I always did something musically. So playing guitar w was my first instrument, played drums a little bit, a little bit of piano, played a little bit of bass. Kind of a jack of all trades, master of none. Yeah. And then uh, growing, going into college in Boston, uh, I went to Berkeley, which I thought is just a great music school. And then uh, I started engineering, getting in the studio side of stuff, and worked uh, at a studio called New Alliance, which was like I called all the studios in Boston, and this was the days of the Yellow Pages. Yeah. I just went down and called all the, the things I wanted to intern because I thought, studios were so cool like just looking at all the gear and it's yeah. like oh this is just a cool environment to be in it combined the 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 both for me the the science and the art the business and the political and and uh, there were all these things in balance of making music in the studio right so i was really interested in that and working at new alliance which was this basement studio the building no longer exists. It was behind Fenway Park on Boylston Street in the basement, and it was all these rehearsal rooms, and it w dingy would be like being nice way to describe it. This was rock and roll. This was punk rock. This was rock and roll. The, the, the hallway smelled of, of beer and puke, and some of the loudest, greatest rock bands rehearsed there. And then there was a studio that kindly took me in, and I interned there. And I learned so much, and that to me is still like the ground zero for a lot of people I met in the industry. A lot of the gigs that like even spread out into here. So from there, I worked. I met people, and I got gigs with Blue Man Group, that off Broadway show. And this was back in mid '90s, late '90s, where like it was still kind of like a. Not saying that it's not cool, but uh, you know they hadn't opened Vegas yet, and it was still kind of like this this really kind of not underground thing, but, you know, pseudo underground, you know, popular culture thing. And then another record that we had worked on there was this band came in one weekend to do demos. They were an old speed metal band where the drummer decided to start fronting the band and they were called Seika. And he had this new band and they were called Godsmack. And those demos, and I, I want to tell the story because it kind of ties into, I think, the ethos of your podcast and, and quote unquote, and I'm doing air quotes for local band because I, I really don't like that term because yeah. I think there's a derogatory thing about that, but I'll get back to that. So this band comes in and, and weekend cuts what becomes the first Godsmack record with, with whatever, like this is, I think it, now it's probably sold seven 
million copies. I know for sure, because my friend obviously produced that, I, I know for sure it sold six million or four million, something like that. It was, it was a huge selling record. And um, so that, that record was done in the weekend. I remember being the, the assistant or the intern on that record and not really thinking much of it, right? Like another band is going to come in. And, and I remember talking to Tony, their guitar player, and like sitting in the front lounge with him and like, what are your hopes for this? And he goes, I just want to quit my job at the photo mat. And I'm like, whatever. <laughs> yeah. You know, lo and behold. The reason why I think the story is important and it ties in is because they were considered a local band, right? And, 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 and they, they claim Boston, but they, they were actually from Haverhill, Massachusetts, which is like on the border of New Hampshire and, 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 um, and Massachusetts. And so no one in Boston knew of the band. Wow. Right? But when you go outside, okay. like the areas that we are in compared to Los Angeles, they were huge because the radio station, the local radio station that touted them on the Sunday night show, the same way like Kat Corbett, who's also a Boston person, has the Sunday night um, show at K-Rock, right? Yeah. Locals only. Well, you know, a lot of radio stations have that format. So Godsmack got heralded on the local Sunday night show. And it kind of like spread wildfire. And they put this CD that we did at New Alliance in sale at the local record store, which was this store called Newberry Comics. It was really cool. One of the strongest independent record retailers back when, you know, record stores were really, really the thing. Tower yeah, Tower, Tower was yeah. the behemoth, right? Yeah. Uh, and so they put their, their record, their CD by themselves in that store on consignment. And through the love of AAF, through the love of playing locally, right? Kind of just like this perfect storm, right? Of yeah. things. Yeah. I think it also had a lot to do with like the death of the post-grunge era guitar stuff and this new wave of new metal, heavy, aggressive. You had Disturbed, the Limp Biscuits, Corn. You had all these like heavy, what's considered active rock now, right? So it was this like perfect storm that's happening. And then one day, like the MCA records rep goes into Newberry Comics, right? The local records uh, label rep goes like, hey, how are my records doing? How are they positioned? You know, just checking in, like making sure the, the records are in stock, making sure that when people walk in, they see their product, all that kind of stuff, right? And she talked to the, uh, the Newberry Comics person and goes, well, this band Godsmack's outselling anything you guys have. Who's this band? Like, as it is, it's outselling it like two to one. So. so here's how a local band got the attention of major labels. So MCA heard about it. I think they ended up signing with the Universal Republic. Uh, they ended up taking that record, remastering it, putting new artwork. But that record that was done over the weekend became their debut multi-platinum selling record and Correct. really not only garnered something for Godsmack, but it was a part of that, like I said, that, that larger movement of heavy guitar-oriented music, right? Um, which ironically killed the band that I was playing in because we were like this <laughs> post-grunge thing and then, you know, and then everyone was looking for the, you know, the next Disturbed or the next Godsmack, yeah, right? Yeah. And that's why I say like, like you know, before we we started recording this officially, we were talking about regional stuff. And that's why, like, I don't like that idea of, like, a local band. So either you're an artist or you're not. And we live in this age where, like I said, everything's niche, yeah. right? What's huge to me, you might not know anything about. And what's huge to you, like, I might be clueless about. Yeah. And, that, and that's what I find is really what music is right now in 2018, 2019. Yeah. And, like, when I worked... 
Um, for seven years, I, I had produced and mixed all the musical bands for NBC Carson Daly show, right? And there were plenty of artists where I'm like, I have no clue who this band is. Never heard of this artist. Mm -hmm. And I would go and they sell out like five nights in a row at the Fonda. With, with no That's, recognition other than... That I know of, right? Yeah, yeah. But they're playing in front of 6,000 people. Yeah. That's no joke, dude. Yeah, and they're sold out. And, and so that's just the power of, of super niche. It's like, maybe it's an electronic artist that a rock band wouldn't know, or maybe it's a, you know, like Tiger Army is a huge band. My friend plays in Tiger Army, right? And I have other friends who are like, oh my God, that band's huge. And, you know, obviously you talk to my mom, she doesn't know who, who they are, right? But I, I think, because so, it's like changed. It's like back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, like we all knew who the big superstars were. Yeah. Now the superstars are just, are super niche. So that's where it's like, There's you, for everyone. yeah, and you can't think of yourself as a local band. It's like, it's either you're an artist or you're not at this point, right? right. Don't think of yourself as a local artist, but also at the same time, embrace the regional aspect of who you are and what you are, right? Because we all have to start from something and it, it kind of grows and, and let that regional idiom, like whatever that, the thing that's characteristic of that region, like let that soak into becoming part of your identity. And what I mean by that is um, there was an artist, this is kind of going way back, but I discovered the song after its prime. I think the artist was called Milky Chance mm. and he's a French artist, right? Kind of this like acoustic electronic thing, a little bit on that Ed Sheeran tip, right? And he had a huge song. I forget the name of it. Uh, you know, you and me, we can do it every day. You know, it. Yeah. And I was listening to that song, and I was like, harmonically, it's so interesting in the verse because it's almost these like Django Reinhorn, like gypsy jazz chords, right? Yeah. Over the super, the verse is that, and then like the the chorus is just like a, such a simple, brilliant chorus. But I was like, where did he get that like? I would never think of those changes, like harmonically. And then I was like, I was like looking him up. I'm like, oh, he's French. Like that's a total French thing. I get it now, right? That so that's where I mean, like embrace the regional like flavor, yeah. make it your own, and yeah. don't never think of yourself as a local artist. And then on top of that, like what I wanted to segue because this is like a super passion of mine. Like we don't have to go to Capitol Records. We don't have to go to these large studios, and it's it's both a blessing and a curse. And here's here's what I. This is how I view it, right? Is we're obviously sitting in a converted garage. I have nothing but love for these giant studios, but a studio is like, it's a church, it's a temple of sound. And wherever you choose to worship should be revered. Mm -hmm. So even if it is your bedroom, someone's converted garage or Capitol Records, to me, that's a temple of sound and you just treat it with respect, right? I never come into the studio even though it's in my house. I never come in in my pajamas and flip-flops and I'm gonna sit down and like work on an artist material, even if the artist isn't attended, right? Because I just, I just respect the process and I respect that it, this is what it is, right? This to me is my temple for me to work in. I think a lot of artists feel there's a barrier to being great and I, and I sometimes feel that they feel that that's a resource. And, and that may be true, but at the same time, I want to share this story of the idea of like what's, what is considered great. People always think like, oh, I have to have like the fancy tube microphone and I have a great collection of, I don't have like amazing, amazing microphones. I don't have like the $10,000 microphone, but I have some great microphones that I love to use that are very much like industry standard, right? And so you always equate 
or like I have some great guitars. Everyone equates like oh, Gibson Les Paul or whatever, a, a vintage Marshall, all this like stuff, right? The price that we we put on like this equipment as being like that's going to yield great results. And so the the things that I love when I hear and I. Some of this might be folklore. I know one of them might be folklore, one might be true, but the other one I know for true because I had the artist here was, mm. one is, uh, I didn't have this artist here, but you too. Like I've always heard that Bono sings in a 58, which is like a really $100 like handheld microphone that you're going to see everywhere. Yeah, ubiquitous, every, every exactly. in the world has. And he likes to sing with that, with no headphones in the studio, you know, the, the monitors blaring in the studio. Mm. And, and I thought of that, and whether or not that's true or not, there is something to be said about that, one, from a comfort level for the artist, but two, like, it doesn't really matter the quality that is capturing it, it's really what I have to say, right? That's really what you're trying to convey. And then on top of it is like, when you go see him live, he's not gonna be singing through the $13,000 Neumann microphone, he's probably gonna be singing through a 58, and our ear is used to it. So I'm like, oh, that's actually, I wonder if that, if that is true, it works on many levels. And the other thing, this other artist I had in here was this uh, girl named Syra, and um, she sang the hook on that huge Skrillex song. Oh yeah, and so we're and she won a Grammy for it, and so we she we were uh, recutting a vocal for for something on on last call uh, we had her on and and something went down on that channel and I had to bring her up here to to like re re grab a part and so we were hanging out and talking and and obviously I knew Sonny before you know through first to last and other bands he played in before he was Skrillex and we were kind of talking about that and catching up and she's like yeah it's amazing how Sonny became this you know huge thing and she was telling me about it. she's like I, I have a a Grammy, it's the weirdest thing, but yet, you know, I live in this apartment in Hollywood and no one knows who I am, but I, I want a Grammy, you know, I have a Grammy, I have a legit Grammy, and I was like, that's cool, man. And, and she goes, you know, I sang that vocal through just the Mac speakers in a hotel in Japan. I was like, really? She says, yeah, we were just like, we were working on the track, and he goes, I need you to sing this hook. And, uh, you know, where are all my, oh, I forget what it is, where are all my beat boys at or whatever. And he, like, yeah. she's like, yeah, I just sang that into the, you know, the Mac microphone while I was in bed watching TV. <laughs> and so th that goes to show you that, like, no, don't yeah. let, like, equipment be the barrier or let, don't be that, that resource be the barrier for getting your idea out and being great, right? Because canvas is not so much important as the art. Honestly. Yeah, exactly. Like just because something sounds great doesn't mean it's great. <laughs> and just because it is great doesn't mean it sounds great. Because there's plenty of great engineered records yeah. that I would never put on to listen to. <laughs> yeah. But there's plenty of like crappy sounding punk rock records that I love where the hi-hat is louder than the vocal but because it just has vibe right yeah you know so and that's what makes it great that's, what, that's for great. me yeah for me yeah I mean it's different for everybody else but like you know th there's a visceral energy of of music and I think as a kid that always attracted me towards maybe heavier music for a slew of reasons but like that visceral experience you know as far as live venues in the Santa Cruz area right is for me personally and here's my and I always dealt with this horribly until recently was I was never a huge fan of live music. Like that for me was never my trip. Like as a kid, it was the the experience of the record that created a belonging and community to me. It wasn't about going to a show because as a kid growing up, I could never go to a show, right? Just never had that opportunity where I grew up and, and, and the values that my parents had and I'm not like bashing them at all, but I'm just saying like, 
you know, I just never had that experience. And for me, it was about the record. And so the joke I make is like, I don't like going out. You know, I don't like a crowd unless it's for me, right? <laughs> so I, I'm not a huge live music person. It's ironic because I spent the last seven years probably mixing the most live music uh, I think than anybody else. Yeah. I think I, I mixed like probably over like 2,500 songs that were recorded live in the past seven years, right? Awesome. So it's ironic that I don't like live music, and I, I recorded uh, you know probably 500 concerts in the past seven years too. Um, and I think a lot of it is like when you when you capture lightning in a bottle live, it's so special. Yeah. It is like that is most transformative experience that you could ever ask for. And then there's like 493 other times that that doesn't happen. Yeah. And it becomes like the great example, this is like off topic of what you asked, but like through through working on Carson you know, and doing all these live shows, we worked with, there was this young uh, up and coming singer songwriter from Great Britain called Ed Sheeran. No one really knew of him. And he played this venue down in Hollywood called Hotel Cafe. I don't know if you've ever been down there, but it barely holds 200 people. Yeah. And um, he obviously had traction in the UK. He had won BAFTAs, which is like the Grammy equivalent in the UK. Um, he already garnered the attention of Elton John, but like coming to the United States, Nobody knew him, except for maybe like 300 kids in Hollywood that went to that show, right? And, and 100 people didn't get into that show. So he goes up there and he, and this is like, he has no major label records out yet. And so, you know, some songs out, um, but nothing really, no traction in the United States, right? No, no Taylor Swift tours and arenas and all that. And he plays this thing and it's just, it's that lightning in a bottle moment. And, he, and for the last song, he's, and he's so funny and he's just like, super charming and entertaining. He's like, he gets off stage and there's no real way to do an encore that's like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? He's like, well, I'm supposed to do an encore and I, but I would have to walk through the crowd to go to the dressing room and this is just lame. So let me just, just do it. Yeah, <laughs> can we just agree this is the encore? Okay. <laughs> he goes, and so he walks out in the crowd and he grabs a chair and he puts the chair in the middle of the room and kind of s splits up the room a little bit. He gets up on the chair, no microphones, unplugs his acoustic guitar, his little looper and all his beatbox stuff that he makes, right? And he just sings a song. I forget what song it is, but he just sings this song, right? And it's just like, you just realize like, holy smokes, this is what music is about. It's about connecting people. It's about people. And then towards the end, he kind of gets the crowd to, he basically makes the crowd do this loop, right? Like he normally does with his pedals, like he does these vocal loops and percussive loops. He makes the one part of the crowd do this one part, and then he has the other part do the harmony, right? And he kind of gets it going, and he gets it looping, and he does the final chorus with the crowd doing the loop. And then like, so the crowd's kind of swallowing him up, and you can't really see, and of course people have their, their phones out and recording it, but like you just kind of like, if you're, if you're kind of like don't have the right line of sight, you don't really see what's going on, but you just hear this like really cool thing. Like it just becomes about us, so, right? So super punk rock, right? In the sense that like who's on stage is us and, and, and we are on stage, right? And so he does the last chorus, the crowd is singing, he walks out and leaves. He's outside having a cigarette and a beer. And for the next five minutes, the crowd is still singing. <laughs> And the like part of the crowd just doesn't know that he's left. Yeah. And I was just like, this 
is amazing. Yeah, so when you can walk out of the room and the, the, it just carries It on. just carries on. I was like, it still gives me goosebumps just telling the story, right? And, and I just remember, I remember walking out and I, I see him and I'm like, hey, Ed, like, you're super talented. And he's like smoking a cigarette and having a beer. And I just go to him and I said, dude, if I had that voice, I wouldn't be doing that. He goes, oh, yeah, okay, whatever, mate. You know? <laughs> and then he becomes this next huge superstar. You know, I guess to go back to your point about music venues and, and artists, you know, if they're griping about pl not places to play, the marketplace will always dictate whether a venue should exist or not, right? Yeah. And I think the thing that is you have to separate is like you also are like 30 minutes away from one of the best cities in the world, right? Yeah. You know, make that your region. But also, like, I think it's hats off, though, too, to uh, the city. Like, when I see the Canyon Club getting put into the, the mall, I'm just like, kind of hats off to the city. Hats off to the corporate people at Westfield. and Hats off to the Canyon Club people yeah. for willing to put a venue in here. And granted, it's marketed to the community. Like, you're not going to have the next up-and-coming punk rock band or EDM artist, right, at the Canyon Club. But... You're gonna have great shows that that make sense. Yeah. You're gonna have great shows that are gonna to go to COC. And what I love about it, like let's even take the camera further out, music just being one part of the liberal arts. Like we have one of the most insane, progressive, out of your head, I'm trying not to curse, just <laughs> out of this world art schools, yeah. right? Right there off the five. Right here, yeah. You know, the California Institute of Arts is like ground zero for avant-garde art. Oh, yeah. And I think you have some of the most creative minds intermingling into this community. And the fact that Newhall is reviving downtown, and hopefully that Lemley goes in. I know there's a lot of backlash about it, and maybe it, Lemley, like, sold. But hopefully something cool goes in there. If it's, it's going to be an art house theater, cool. If it's going to be something else. And you're going to have this, like... These, hopefully these kids from the Art Institute come and cross town into Newhall and vice versa. Mm -hmm. Like, to me, like, that's such a win, yeah. right? For the creative community at large. Right. And I think within that, if there becomes a marketplace for a cool underground house show or a cool underground venue, it will exist. Yeah. Like, I know, I don't know if Santa Barbara still has it, but Santa Barbara had a cool venue called The Living Room, which was like, I mean, that was like punk rock. It was kind of a VFW kind of joint, you know? And, and it was, you know, I, I don't have anything like to say other than like, I, I, you can't, the marketplace dictates whether it's going to exist or not, right? And, and you can't sit around and say like, I'm not, we're not playing shows because our town doesn't have a venue. Yeah. I think that's kind of like the, not a great way to go about it. There's, yeah. There's a, underbelly of stuff happening and it's just like it's not super like obvious to the eye but there's so many great talented producer engineers songwriters and um and musicians that live here like here's a great story so i did a record up here did a couple of records for universal uh one was this band called hell or high water and this other band called atreyu and atreyu is it was like really and they're doing awesome i think they're in japan actually today uh, starting their Japanese tour, but um, so I had the Atreyu guys up here, and the drummer is just this insane songwriter, mm -hmm. and he got this publishing deal, and he writes a lot for television. Oh, cool! And like for television commercials, like you like turn on an ABC song or ABC spot, and it's like, oh my god, that's that's my friend Brandon's song or whatever. Or mm -hmm. uh, I think he even had a song in the in the Super Bowl. 
And his main songwriting partner lives up here, a gentleman by the name of C4. And we go to this dog park and literally C4's house is right there. And my friend Brandon's there like every week. He never comes by and say hi, but whatever. (laughs) But it's things like that. Like there's so many stories similar to that, to mine, to C4, uh, that we all live here. We all call this place home because we love the, uh, convenience to the city, convenience to the, like Burbank airport, LAX airport, uh, and the tranquility. So like we can still be creative and we can have our family life. And I think more and more people are, are striving for that. And, and as artists and musicians get priced out of super popular areas of the city, whether it was Silver Lake in the 90s, Echo Park in the early 2000s, and now Highland Park, now people are like, especially people like me, maybe we're getting older and, and having families, it's like, oh, we're going to look in the valley. And then they, and they're like, well, let's look at the other valley, right? The Santa Clarita Valley. So it's really cool that there's this bubbling undercurrent of like creativeness here in Santa Clarita. And again, like the tip of the iceberg is like the Institute of the Arts, right? And then just go down further and see the roots that like, you know, you'll see famous dudes walking around, like go to the dog park and I'll see like somebody from Alice in Chains or, you know, go to the gym, you see somebody from Good Charlotte. It's like, it's really mind boggling how many people call Santa Clarita home that are in the music industry. And it's awesome. I love it. Well, cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. That was cool. Thank you for listening to the Awesome Town Sound Podcast. We are a production of Radio Free Santa Clarita. For more information, visit RadioFreeSantaClarita.org. You can keep up with all the local music events that we mention here by visiting the Awesome Town Sound Facebook page. And if you enjoyed our show, please tell your friends about it on social media. Tell your friends to subscribe because the bigger this music community gets, the better. We live in an awesome town with awesome artists, awesome bands, and awesome fans. So keep on listening to the Awesome Town Sound Podcast.